Millions are now embarrassed to admit belief in God, but especially the Genesis creation account. Because believing in God is something that is not evidently true. It's a preposterous postulation with no reason to believe it. But the fables in Genesis aren't just not evidently true, they're evidently not true. We know they're not real and couldn't be. We know where those stories came from. We've seen the original versions of those stories a millennia before men began compiling the Bible. And they were always just stories, legendary folklore from multiple sources. A couple of times there are outrageously enhanced exaggerations of something that was really very different, but for the most part, and especially with the story of Adam and Eve, it's just simple fiction appropriated from previous polytheism with the same iconic elements, but none of the modern interpretations or associations that don't come along until they're eventually adapted and integrated into the Bible. There is a strictly metaphorical interpretation which presents a moral good enough to place it alongside the fables of Aesop, but it can't be interpreted literally because there is absolutely no possible connection to reality whatsoever. It's one thing to be so naive and uncritical that you think that superheroes might exist, but this story is so absurd that it's like thinking that cartoon characters are real. Yet scenarios of how life supposedly began continue to change. Science works rather like a game of 20 questions. Unless you're lucky enough to guess correctly early on, then with every question asked, your position changes. But at the same time, it's always improving, zeroing in on the real truth, becoming more accurate with every correction, even from questions you were wrong about. But with your position, you simply refuse to check yourself. So you cannot improve your understanding or even know whether you understand, which of course you don't. You simply assume your conclusion and ignore everything that shows that you're wrong. That's why science works and religion can't. This is from a book review. Most people learn some version of the primordial soup theory, which posits that Earth's early oceans contained enough organic chemicals to form spontaneously some kind of primitive self-replicator. But biology has moved on, and Mr. Lane, the author, gives a convincing account, based on basic chemical principles, of why this theory is almost certainly wrong. There is simply not enough energy available in such a system to produce complicated chemicals at anything like the required rate. Mr. Lane's preferred idea is that life got its start in warm vents at the bottom of the ocean, in which hot, mineral-infused water wells up from beneath the seafloor. As the water cools, the minerals precipitate out, forming intricate, honeycombed structures. These tiny mineral chambers provided an early version of the modern cell wall. You can just hear the music in the background of this classic opinion given as fact. What I hear is resentment in your voice that another account sounds so much more reasonable and valid than yours. But this isn't just an opinion. You'd be amazed at how much of this is already confirmed and understood. Yet it's not presented as fact either. This is a hypothesis, one that is both indicated by the evidence and is also an attempt to explain the body of facts we know so far. This hypothesis will either be borne out by further discoveries or it could be refuted or another potential explanation might be indicated, which is the situation your source is describing. They kept the chemistry inside the cell different from that outside. Who says? Well, the facts say that. I remember that hypotheses are intended to explain the data that we know. Right now we're talking about the beginning of life. That's biology. And one of the defining characteristics of life is homeostasis, the observation that cells maintain a stable internal chemical balance that is different from what is outside the cell. The hypothesis you're reading about is an attempt to explain that. 
That, in turn, allowed the formation of a strong voltage gradient across their boundaries. The opinion necessarily must grow. No, it doesn't. And no, it isn't. Quit your bitching. I know you don't understand this, that it's beyond your comprehension and an affront to the ridiculous doctrine of fables and fairy tales that you've been conditioned to worship without a thought, but stop interjecting your objections over the words of wiser men, because you're not trying to learn anything, and you obviously don't want your, your audience to understand anything either, because that would clearly be bad for your business. Those gradients were the forerunners of the voltage differences that enable modern cells to manufacture the thousands of chemicals they need to function. What? He said, gradients. That means an incline or a depiction of a variance. He says these electrical variations at the boundary were the forerunners or precursors of the voltage differences we see in modern cells. Put another way, biochemistry runs off electrochemical reactions. The cellular boundary is a membrane that tends to draw in ions effectively building and storing that charge. Your sources hypothesized that these reactions were apparently capacitated by the strong voltage gradient, typically within a range of 40 millivolts, at the boundary of the initial cells. Because even the phospholipid bilayer that makes up that boundary already has an inherent polarity that prompts a spontaneous assembly into... Oh, never mind. And which therefore provide the vital spark for every living thing on the planet. Just to clarify, we're not looking for any actual spark here. It's not like lightning striking a mud puddle. I, for one, don't think that the origin of life came only from a single catalyst, but from a concert of contributing processes. At present, there are a dozen concordant hypotheses, most of which could be at least partial contributors all at the same time. Look, for example, at lipids first, RNA first, radioactive beach, and montmorillonite clay, which has been found all over the Earth and recently on Mars. It catalyzes the formation of nucleic acid polymers, which is significant for the RNA world hypothesis, but it also catalyzes 10 carbon vesicles, lipid-like coats, around these nucleic acids. Phospholipid bilayers already form spontaneously on contact with water due to their combined polarity, but this coating is selectively permeable. It lets in monomers of raw material, but once assembled, the polymers can't exit the vesicle. So now you have RNA concentrating and concentrating, and some RNAs are just naturally autocatalytic, meaning that they will make more of themselves from random RNA sequences or destroy sequences that differ from themselves. And pretty soon you've got RNA crudely replicating in these tiny little carbon compound-coated vesicles in clay, and that selects for only the autocatalytic types of RNA because the rest become destroyed or incorporated. So that's pretty much what the first life was like. Regarding how the rest of this happened, how do we find out what part happened how? That's an investigation, and it requires that we evaluate every potential explanation and check to see if the facts bear them out. That's what hypotheses are, and this process is how we know whether we know anything. Let's return to examining the incredible complexity of life on Earth. In part three, we saw the intricacy of the human eye. And Darwin had already adequately explained the evolution of the eye in the first draft of his theory 150 years ago, which is why our eye is not as advanced as a raptor's eye and not as well designed as an octopus eye and prone to so many imperfections and failures. All of this indicates that biological complexity is emergent and not magical or miraculous. And the more mankind learns about how the human body functions, we must ask, how could it possibly have just evolved? The very nose on your face brings this question smashing into it. The evolutionary answer is as plain as the nose on your face. I do know the answer to your question, but it's a longer answer than all of your questions combined. Part of that concerns your nose. We have all the defining characteristics of monkeys. 
fingerprints, fingernails, enlarged brains, two pectoral mammae, even for males, another indicator of unintelligent design. But even those ears of yours, every monkey has ears like that and only monkeys have ears like that. But your nose determines which kind of monkey you are. Platyrines, or New World monkeys, generally have nostrils that are splayed apart, out to the sides. But Caterines, Old World monkeys, have their nostrils pointing down. I think we're the only animals on Earth whose nostrils point downward like that, and maybe that's because, being monkeys, the things that we smell are either in or on our fingers. How is it that your nose can smell one or more odors or fragrances and know within a split second what they are? Let's understand the human sense of smell. How does a nose bombarded with odors that arrive in different amounts and combinations consistently identify each aroma? It can essentially be broken down into a predictable mathematical pattern. Odors arrive in small packets, tiny bouquets of molecules that are inhaled. Receptor cells inside the nose respond by producing a series of electrical spikes which are communicated to the olfactory bulb in the brain where the smell is decoded. It's like Morse code, said a professor of neurobiology, supervisor of a recent study about the olfactory system that is the first to document the coding is linear. The pattern and spacing of the clicks make different letters. The pattern of the electrical spikes translates to specific smells. But significantly, when the smell is repeated in the same dose, the pattern remains the same, and when the odor varies in duration, the neuron's electrical response changes proportionately. In other words, the response is orderly and predictable rather than chaotic and irregular. And dumb evolution did this? Of course. We inherited our ability to taste particles in the air from the nostrils of our fishy ancestors using that same trait in the water. They inherited it from a simpler system in earlier ancestors as a necessity with a powerful selective pressure. If you look at it as a case of population mechanics, which is what evolution is, then it's easy to see how the simplest of cellular sensitivities would be honed over time in every generation of every lineage by a process that is completely blind and acting without intent. Everything in the Bible is absolute nonsense, but natural selection is demonstrably real and really works in the real world. Dr. Werner von Braun, recall he was the father of the American space program, saw that complexity of design throughout nature and the universe pointed to a great designer. You mean he imagined that, but that it was an unsupported and thus unwarranted assumption because he was never able to show any fact that actually indicated that conclusion. It was also an unrealistic assumption requiring a number of compiled miracles, meaning that something implausible required something impossible to account for the improbable all without any real reason behind any of it. Consider this extensive insight. For me, the idea of a creation is not conceivable without invoking the necessity of design. This is the argument from incredulity, your favorite logical fallacy because you use it all the time. That is, if you can't understand it and you can't accept that it's beyond your comprehension, at least for the moment, then you assume that it simply can't be because you will only accept what you think you can understand and then you don't really even understand what you think you do. One cannot be exposed to the law and order of the universe without concluding that there must be design and purpose behind it all. This is a lie. I know several scientists, and he knew several scientists, who either never imagined any purpose behind anything outside of man's own hands, or who rejected such notions as unrealistic, unwarranted, unnecessary assertions of unsupported absurdity. 
In the world around us, we can behold the obvious manifestations of an ordered, structured plan or design. This is another lie, because something cannot be obvious if it's not even apparent, and the plan he's talking about apparently does not exist, because it has never been indicated by any fact discovered by anyone ever. We can see the will of the species to live and propagate, and we are humbled by the powerful forces at work on a galactic scale and the purposeful orderliness of nature that endows a tiny and ungainly seed with the ability to develop into a beautiful flower. The better we understand the intricacies of the universe and all it harbors, the more reason we have found to marvel at the inherent design upon which it is based. I wouldn't actually argue with what he just said here because the various forces and processes of nature are certainly capable of their own emergent patterns of unintended design. Indeed, the bottom-up patterns of emergence are what people so often mistake for the top-down authority of God. But while we can simulate and demonstrate the properties of emergent complexity, there is no indication anywhere of even the possibility of any directed authority nor intent of purpose. While the admission of a design for the universe ultimately raises the question of a designer, a subject outside science, the scientific method does not allow us to exclude data which lead to the conclusion that the universe, life, and man are based on design. Right, we can't exclude that data, but then neither can we include it because it doesn't exist. Again, Werner von Braun is not speaking truthfully. If he knew of any such data, then he or someone else would have pointed it out by now and showed how it indicates intended purpose. Then he wouldn't be known as the man who founded NASA so much as the man who found God, which is a much bigger achievement. As it is now, some 40 years after he died, he is remembered as a scientist who did some outstanding work, but also had crazy ideas that weren't shared by his peers because they weren't supported or indicated by anything. To be forced to believe only one conclusion, that everything in the universe happened by chance, would violate the very objectivity of science itself. One of the ways that science seeks to minimize or eliminate bias is by requiring supportive evidence for every postulation and then subjecting that to critical examination and expert analysis. Thus, science cannot objectively confirm what is only a subjective impression held only by a minority of people for purely emotional reasons. It doesn't matter what you want to believe. All that matters is what the data shows, and the data does not show what you want it to. Certainly there are those who argue the universe evolved out of a random process. But what random process could produce the brain of a man or the system of the human eye? He had already answered his own question, although he didn't say the words natural selection. Some people say that science has been unable to prove the existence of a designer. That's right, but it's also important to add that they haven't been able to indicate one in any way either, nor could they show that such a fanciful, anthropocentric, myopic fantasy is even possible. So there is literally no reason to believe that there even could be such a thing, because no one has ever explained how a designer even could exist, much less how it could possibly do anything. They admit that many of the miracles in the world around us are hard to understand, and they do not deny that the universe is indeed a far more wondrous thing than the creation medieval man could perceive. But they still maintain that since science has provided us with so many answers, the day will soon arrive when we will be able to understand even the creation of the fundamental laws of nature without a divine intent. At least he got one thing right. There are no miracles, but we have come much closer to understanding the formation of the fundamental laws of nature. 
They challenge science to prove the existence of God. But must we really light a candle to see the sun? No, because the sun is real. It's verifiable by numerous obvious ways, but no one can see or detect God by any means except for man's imagination. And that's it, because God is obviously imaginary. Many men who are intelligent and of good faith say they cannot visualize a designer. Well, can a physicist visualize an electron? By a number of different models, yes. The electron is materially inconceivable, and yet it is so perfectly known through its effects that we use it to illuminate our cities, guide our airliners through the night skies, and take the most accurate measurements. What strange rationale makes some physicists accept the inconceivable electron as real while refusing to accept the reality of a designer on the ground that they cannot conceive him? Because again, we can prove that electrons are real, but there is nothing nothing to imply that a god even could be real. I have discussed the aspect of a designer at some length because it might be that the primary resistance to acknowledging the case for design as a viable scientific alternative to the current case for chance lies in the inconceivability in some scientists' minds of a designer. A bigger problem is a complete absence of any facts to indicate such a thing. We in NASA were often asked what the real reason was for the amazing string of successes we had with Apollo flights to the moon. I think the only honest answer we could give was that we tried to never overlook anything. It is in the same sense of scientific honesty that I endorse the presentation of alternative theories for the origin of the universe, life, and man in the science classroom. But remember that a scientific theory is a field of study and a body of knowledge, including all the known facts, natural laws, and potential hypotheses related to that topic. But there is none of that for God. There is literally nothing anyone can honestly say they actually know about God, including whether there is such a thing or even could be. It would be an error to overlook the possibility that the universe was planned rather than happening by chance. End of quote. I would not overlook any possibility, but once again, I repeat, you have to show that there is one. You have to show that there is some means by which a mind could exist independent of the brain that created it, which is already impossible by definition, to say nothing of existing both within the universe and not within it, but beyond it, as you allege. Failing that, you should at least show some mechanism by which it could function, some precedent or parallel or verified phenomenon confirming that such possibility even exists. But you don't have that for God. You ain't got shit for God, just a handful of myths that we know aren't true, and the wishful thinking of woolly minds who refuse to admit that they're not true. While this series has made plain that planning is far more than a possibility, one could wish for more such honest science. You called him an honest scientist because he lied several times in that quote, and you did too, because you still haven't shown that even a possibility exists. In fact, most scientists do not want you reading these kinds of other scientists. Because we would prefer that scientists be remembered respectfully for their contributions and not for their embarrassing foibles. In an attempt to save von Braun's reputation here, you could at least have included another citation from the same book you were just quoting, wherein Werner von Braun says he does not believe in creation but in a loftier, more deistic concept of God, one which he at least thought that he had shared with other scientific pioneers back when scientists still commonly held such beliefs. But the trend is that the more educated we are, the less religious we are. 
Although religion in general is in a state of decline in every Western demographic, excluding immigration, religious beliefs among scientists are much rarer, much quieter, and when they exist, they are much more advanced in concept than anything you believe.